0: Good morning. Glad to see each and every one of you here today as we continue and actually finish out this sermon series called Remind Me on This Palm Sunday. So if you're here this morning and you're like, I have no idea what Palm Sunday is. That was weird when the kids came in with the palm. I didn't know what kind of cult I was walking into. It's, it's okay. We're going to break that down today. We're going to talk about, I'm going to kick these palms all over the place. I'm probably going to fall. So just if somebody, if you might have to finish the sermon for me today, but I promise you, it's, there's nothing weird about Palm Sunday. Hopefully, there's nothing weird about you walking in today. We're not a cult or anything. There is Kool-Aid back there. You don't have to drink it, though, okay? I mean, you just, just choose whatever. It's coffee, too, okay? So I mean, whatever you got to do. But nonetheless, uh, we're going to continue and finish out this sermon series called Remind Me. I'd encourage you, if you haven't uh, uh, been here to for the first couple ser- uh, parts of that series, you can go online. You can check them out. But really, the premise for this series is that there's all kinds of things that that happen in life. There's a bunch of things, good, godly things that probably get shoved off to the side just because we are so busy. It's 2017. There's no mistaking that we've all got tons of things happening in our life, but I feel like God has some things that he wanted to remind us, especially as things really start to ramp up here in spring. I know we got proms coming up, school's about to get out, you know, Mother's Day, Easter, summer vacations. There's just tons of things that are going to be happening. So it was good just to kind of recenter our focus. And and we're going to continue that talking about Palm Sunday. Again, if you're like, what is this? You're, you're not alone. I read a story this week about a young child who was sick. He actually couldn't go to church. Mom decided to stay home with him. And dad took the other kids to, to church on Palm Sunday. They got back. And, and the whole family had had these palm branches. And the boy said, you know, dad, what's, what's the deal with all the p- palms? And, and the dad said, well, it's Palm Sunday, the the day when Jesus walked in, everybody laid the palms at his feet and their cloaks. And son, you know, naturally distraught said, man, the one day I don't show up, Jesus decides to come back, show up in church, right? You know, that's funny. I don't care who you are. Okay. That, I thought that was, that was a good story, but, uh, nevertheless, um, I want you to open up your Bible if you brought it. I hope you did. We're going to talk about Palm Sunday. I want to remind you who Jesus is, and we're going to focus on this story. So if you're new to the whole Bible, I want you to open up towards the back section called the New Testament. You want to find a book called Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke is how it will go. If you flat out don't own a Bible, we got some free ones in the back for you. Make sure you grab one on your way out. Take out your phone. If you got a Bible app, that's fine with me two but it's really important for you to understand a couple things while you're getting to Luke Uh, about Palm Sunday and what was really happening historically in and around Jerusalem during this time period. So it's it's important for you to know that, that Jerusalem is controlled by the Roman Empire. In fact, for a thousand years, the Jewish people have been enslaved. No freedom. I want you to really think about that. A thousand years they've been controlled by different groups of people. If you know Uh, your world history. You know that the Babylonians controlled them for a while. A guy named King Nebuchadnezzar you can read about in your Bible. There were the Persians, if you've heard of the Persians. Okay, a fan. All right, King Cyrus, Darius, perhaps Xerxes. If you know King Xerxes, seen that movie 300, the same guy. Uh, Then Greeks, Came in and took over, Alexander the Great, and now it's the Romans. So our country is what, 240 ish years old? We have not even 25% of uh, world history compared to these people. And they've been enslaved that long, 1,000 years. Furthermore, for 400 of those years, again, longer than America's even been a country, God has not spoken at all. He's been silent. Before, God would select certain people and he would speak through them, you know, Moses and Joshua. Then we had uh, judges and kings that God would set up. And then there were prophets. There was a place in the temple that a priest could go in only once a year. That's where God actually would dwell, the holy of holies, and actually get to hear from God. But for 400 years, crickets, nothing, Yet the Jews, they're a scholarly group of people, they understand the Bible. A lot of them actually had uh, certain portions of the Old Testament completely memorized. And they knew that God had promised them a Messiah, a Savior, someone who would rescue them from this slavery that they'd been in for a thousand years. And if you know your Old Testament, you can see this prophecy in Isaiah 53 most clearly outlined for you. I won't read it for you this morning, but... If you're thinking about this Palm Sunday, you need to understand that there was an expectation of someone who would come and rescue them. For a thousand years they've been waiting, and for 400 years God hasn't said a word, but just because God is silent doesn't mean God is absent. For the past three years, these Stories about this guy named Jesus have been building. People are talking. Did you hear about the girl? I think she's probably like in seventh grade now. She was she was dead. I saw her dead, and Jesus raised her back to life. And somebody else says, Yeah, but my brother, he was in an accident, he was blind, he hadn't been able to see in years, and Jesus showed up. He spits in the ground, put that loogie mud all in his face, and now my brother can see. Yeah, but What about the people with leprosy? They have no skin, and then all of a sudden they get skin growing back. It's crazy, these things that Jesus is doing. Could this be the one, the promised one, the Savior? Now, combine that with the fact that here in Jerusalem, at the time of this parade, which we're going to read about on Palm Sunday, it's the Passover week, which means for 1,446 years, every year, a, a thousand of those years in slavery, these Jews have been celebrating the day it took blood to save them. You can read about that story in Exodus chapter 12. Go rent the movie if you're not a reader. Charlton Heston is amazing in the Ten Commandments, but they celebrate. Every year, for 1,446 years, the time it took blood to save them. And on this day, the beginning of this holy week, Jesus decides that he's going to ride in to Jerusalem. A Jerusalem that has swelled in population 40 to 50 times its normal size. On Passover week, you know that all the Jews, because if you're Jewish, you're going to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. And you know that your house is going to be filled up with some people. you got dudes sleeping on your couch and on your floor. You just need to get as many people as you can in there to celebrate this Holy Week in Jerusalem. And the only thing I could really think of to put this in context for you is is the parade that Kansas City Royals had when they won the World Series. Take a look at this picture. This is what Jerusalem might have looked like the day Jesus came in to the city, packed with people. Can you imagine being in this group and this throng and, and you're not celebrating a world championship, although that's very important, okay? Don't get me wrong. We're world champs. We can, we can say that. But Jesus rode into this throng, these probably, by all accounts, millions of people. He chose this day very deliberately. So imagine you're in this crowd, but then imagine you're the Roman Empire. You've heard these stories about this this eternal king, this this king warrior going to come in and save the people. And not on your watch. You're wrong. Ain't nobody going to come in here and try and defeat you. So you do what anybody would do. You double, you triple your troops. You're in DEFCON 5. You're making sure nobody's going to come in that you don't know about. So let's check out the story now. You're in Luke. You need big number 19. That's the context of what Jesus was facing when he decided to ride in to Jerusalem. Let's pick it up in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. Now, time out. You ever read the Bible and you're like, what? Is that, ac- I think that's in there. That's in there. They decide to steal, like Jesus told them to go steal the colt. And they do it. Have you, anybody ever stolen anything? There's no cops in here, people. Okay. Am I the only one? There are like two of you that have ever sold. Okay. Pretty great crowd in here this morning. God bless you all. Okay. I'm not going to have you arrested. Uh, no, if you steal something, you don't just, I mean, you're sizing that up. You're like, mm, is now the time you're going to steal this? I mean, what do you think the disciples were thinking? They're like, you go, you go, you get it. I'll stay right here, right? You're, you're shoving the other one in front of you, but they do it. They go and steal this animal and they say, uh, the Lord has need of it. You try that today. Okay, go get in a car. You steal that car. And when the owner's like, what are you doing? You say, the Lord has need of it. See what happens to you. You will go to jail. But, um, Verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these men were silent, the very stones would cry out. Man, that would have been cool. I wish that the, the men would have been silent. We could have heard. The, you wonder what stones sound like? Like I, I, imagine, uh, I imagine my stones sound like James Earl Jones, right, when they talk. That would be a sweet sound, but I don't know. You can imagine whatever you want. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation that ultimately happened jerusalem was destroyed they were hemmed in from every side but this is really what ultimately got jesus killed the fact that he kept claiming to be god you don't know the point of your visitation in other words i'm god i'm visiting you and this is what drove the people crazy the pharisees specifically you could see it there that when people were praising him as god they're like tell them to shut their mouths But that's what got Jesus killed. He couldn't help himself. He kept over and over claiming to be God. Here's what you can write down if you're going to take some notes this morning. Jesus is the king. I want to remind you who Jesus is. Jesus is the king. Not a king. Jesus is the king. We're going to dive into that more because... Uh, we need to drill down on specific things that you need to know about a king and a kingdom. But here's what's important to notice within this story about a king. The king will hear our expectations, but he won't necessarily give in to them. He heard what these people were saying. They had an expectation that Jesus was going to save them on that day, probably in some mighty military achievement. But Jesus doesn't necessarily give in to our expectations. Think about this. For a thousand years, the Jews have been waiting, and for a thousand years, they've been crying out to God, bring us a better life. And on this day, Jesus rides in. But obedience is my responsibility, not God's. If God was subject to my everyday command, then who's really God? Who'd be serving who? Now, I wouldn't say this out loud, especially in church, but if I'm being honest, I want God to change my life. I want God to give me stuff. I want God to bless me, and I don't have to say it out loud because more often than not, my prayers say it for me. Come on, somebody. You know that's true. See, King Jesus came to make you right with God didn't necessarily come to change your economic class or your social status or any other worldly classification. Don't misunderstand me. God does care about you. God does want to see your life change, but you've got to care about the things God cares about. And at the end of the parade, Jesus cries and weeps for the city because everyone missed the point. So I don't know if you've ever been to a party before, but if you've been and you had a really great time and everybody there is talking about, man, how awesome was that party? But the the host of the party is weeping at the end of it. I don't think you can call that a win. This is where we find our King Jesus weeping for a city. He's more concerned about your heart being right than your bank account being right or anything else that's worldly because it's not of His kingdom. So even if you're here today, you know that Jesus is a king, it's important for you to realize that having the right king in the wrong kingdom will only bring frustration. Even if you trust Jesus as king, if you have some certain expectations for him as a king, and you put him in the wrong kingdom, it's going to cause you to be frustrated. I say this all the time. All frustration is born out of unmet expectation. You know that's true if you're married because you have some expectations for your spouse and they don't live up to them and immediately you're frustrated but that's true in every area of life you bring into expectations to whatever you're doing when those expectations aren't met you're frustrated these jews were in the wrong kingdom they wanted something different from this king and they had the right bible Like I said, a lot of people had it memorized. They'd read Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, as he humble and mounted on a donkey. They were seeing this. Eyewitnesses live. They had these expectations for Jesus that he didn't have for himself. They were wrong. So with the rest of our time this morning, I want to talk about how we need to get the right king in the right kingdom. I want to remind you of who Jesus really is. You say, Pastor, I've got a pretty good idea of who Jesus is. Well, maybe. I hope so. But I believe anytime you open the Bible, God opens his mouth. So I want to see what God has to say about who King Jesus really is. And to have the right king, we need the right number one orders. We need to have the right orders. What's cool about the Bible is Jesus actually just got done giving the orders. We didn't read them, but you can read about it on your own time. You can look at verse 28 again. It says, and when he had said these things, well, what things did he say? He just got done telling a story called the parable of the 10 minus. Again, you can read it on your own, but the premise of this story, the parable of the 10 minus is that a nobleman leaves his country for an extended period of time He entrusts some money, minas, which is actually about a year's worth of uh, three months, excuse me, about a three months salary for these people. And he leaves them a a, a tremendous amount of wealth. And he says, I want you to invest this, steward it well for when I get back, I'm going to be gone for a while. Work hard. So after telling the story, then Jesus begins the parade. In other words, Jesus was telling his disciples, now that you know how to live, I can go and die. Because in a very real way, Jesus was saying, I'm entrusting you this great wealth, not earthly wealth, kingdom wealth. And you need to steward it well to get back. And for you this morning, God is telling you the same thing. God brought you here this morning to tell you, you don't have the right orders You need to get your orders right. You're not maximizing your gifts and your talents to bring glory to God. You're about trying to make life easier for yourself. And that's not what God's interested in. God's interested in you doing the work that he's entrusted to you. And listen to me, this is tough. This is hard. This kingdom work. It's not for the faint of heart. It's very difficult. But that's why I want you in a small group. That's why I want you surrounded by other people that can help you do life well. These orders that God has given us, they're too big to accomplish for an hour on a weekend. I can't help change your marriage in an hour. I can't help you be a better parent or overcome an addiction. You know who can? People that you're doing life with every single week for an extended period of time. People that you're open and honest with. People that you can trust. Man, you want to get over something difficult in your life? You've got to have people in your life that can help you through those things. Some of you have gone through some horrible, horrible, just terrible things. God doesn't want you to waste that. Sure, he could have stopped it. He could have prevented it, but he also maybe allowed it so you can minister to somebody else. This is just the order that God has given you for your life to help minister to somebody else. Let me remind you that Jesus is king. He's given us orders. And these orders include investing your life into the kingdom and into other people. Make sure your orders are right. Here's number two, obedience. Obedience. Sometimes what God tells you to do doesn't make sense. Again, Look at verse thirty. He tells these guys to go steal a donkey. He says, uh, "You've never done this before, but I want you to go take this donkey." They'd be like, "Jesus, this is this is socially unacceptable." This is legally frowned upon. I'm not sure how this is going to end well for us. We don't know, again, though, if this was set up by Jesus. Perhaps he met this guy somewhere along the road, and the guy was like, Hey, here's my business card. I keep donkeys. If you ever need anything, please. Oh, yeah, I'll I'll phone phone you in a little while. I mean, we don't know if this was set up or if this was just some miracle. I like to think that it's a miracle. All we know is these dudes end up with a donkey by simply saying the Lord needs the donkey. Great, take it. Here's my point. Everybody loves the idea of King Jesus, but very few people want King Jesus telling them what to do. What do you mean we can't live together? It's economically going to help us, Jesus. Socially, it's fine. Nobody thinks that's weird anymore. What do you mean we can't sleep together? We love each other. How are you going to tell me what to do? This is my body. You don't tell me what to do with my body. What do you mean I'm supposed to tithe? How am I supposed to get ahead, Jesus? I got college coming up. I got these kids. You know, how are you going to tell me what to do with my money? What do you mean I'm supposed to love my spouse no matter what? You know how they treat me, King Jesus? People don't want to be told what to do. Sometimes what God tells you what to do, it doesn't make sense. Because when you're reminded that Jesus isn't just some good prophet or moral teacher, but he's a king, there's a lot more baggage that comes with a king. No longer are these suggestions. These are orders. And your job is obedience. So let me say it this way. Mature faith isn't knowing the Bible It's not knowing the order of the Old Testament prophets. It's not memorizing Scripture. All those things are really, really good. Mature faith isn't understanding deep doctrine and understanding the theology of how somebody comes to faith in Christ. Again, those are all good, great things, but mature faith is obedience. Mature faith is saying yes to God, even when it doesn't make sense. What do you mean I'm supposed to go start a church? I ain't got no seminary, Jesus. I'm supposed to just sell all my things, move and start this. How am I going to convince anybody that this is a good idea? Believe me, a lot of people tell me this is a horrible idea. (laughs) Go do something else. But sometimes you just have to say yes. God, I trust you no matter what. Yes, the answer is yes. I don't know what you're calling me to do, but the answer is yes. That's where you got to get to a place in your life. Mature faith is... God, I'll, I'll surrender my life. Whatever you need me to do, I will do. Mature faith is believing that God is good all the time. He has your best interests in mind. God's not trying to keep anything from you. He just asks you to be obedient in this life. When you understand that Jesus is king, you have to have the right view of number three. Generosity. This is nothing to do about money either. This is really... Good. Verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, at first glance, that just seems like something that's nice to do. Nice little gesture from the Jews, put their cloaks on the ground uh, is what it is. But here's what you have to understand about first century Jerusalem. People only had one cloak. It wasn't like you just went down to Kohl's and got another cloak. You had one. It was very important. It's what kept you warm at night, is what made your bed soft, okay? I mean, many scholars believe that your cloak is your single greatest possession as a human being in first century Jerusalem. So it's one thing to put it on a donkey. It's quite another thing to lay it down in front of said donkey. And once he's trampled all over it, to run ahead, grab the cloak after the donkey's passed, sprint down the line its some sort of Indian running cross country, and you set your cloak down again so the donkey can repeatedly trample over it. Can I just remind you of the emissions that this vehicle would produce? As it was walking along, or can I remind you of the fact that there were probably millions of people that came into the city, and their emissions were probably left along the road as well, so you have to let maybe your cloak be emissed, or whatever that word is, and not only that, but you have to set your cloak down on some emissions in order so it can be trampled on, and Kind of all ground up in there, and can I remind you why foot washing was such a big deal because of all these emissions on the road you didn 't want to come in and be like bro you you smell like emissions right you know what i 'm saying <laughs> like this is not this is not okay for you to come into my house like this. this is why and this is what the people their most valuable possession they lay down. This is what generosity is all about. And what I really hope you're noticing is that generosity is contagious. One person started laying their cloak down and everybody said, I, I need to lay my cloak down one person started with the palm branches one person started with shouting Hosanna here comes the king and soon everybody was shouting and praising God what's that mean for you it means generosity should be you consistently coming to church praising God part of your generosity is like like when you've had a week where it feels like you're the cloak on the road You need to come to a place that's life-giving. People can surround you and say, man, I've been there. Or you can be on the other side of that where you're the one encouraging somebody. Your generosity is you being here. It not necessarily has anything to do with money. It's about you praising God or you helping somebody else. What were the two biggest commandments? Love God, love others is what Jesus said. Part of that is you showing up on a weekend, which brings me to point four. Number four, praise, praise. What is praise? We see in verses 37 through 40, the people singing a song of praise. They're actually singing Psalm 118, 26, if you were curious. And the word praise, we immediately start thinking songs as well. We think, if, well, if somebody's going to be praising, then it's got to have to do with music. So let me just kind of remind you what praise actually is. Check this out, Romans 12. So, brothers and sisters, since God has shown us great mercy, I beg you to offer your lives as a living sacrifice to him. Your offering must be only for God and pleasing to him, which is the spiritual way for you to worship or Praise. Do not be shaped by this world. Instead, be changed within by a new way of thinking. Then you will be able to decide what God wants for you. You will know what is good and pleasing to him and what is perfect. So, just out of curiosity, how many songs are being sung in that passage? Zero. How many guitars are being played? How many drums are on a stage? None. See, our response to what God has done is our praise. Our obedience is our highest form of praise. How you live just normal, everyday life is about praise. It's not necessarily about singing a song, although that can be part of it. It's not necessarily about playing an instrument, again, although that can be part of it. See, sometimes I think we forget what praise really is. Man, I would love to see out every Sunday, hands being raised, shouting and praising to our King Jesus. But if that's not you, I understand that. But every day that you live, that's how you praise. Think about how you're praising God and whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, giving glory to God. Again, I want to remind us of who Jesus really is, because I struggled with this for a long time about raising my hands at this dude. I'm singing at this dude. like This doesn't sound real like cool to me to to have to do all this. And, and it was when I discovered this passage that things really clicked for me. So I'd like to share it with you. It's Revelation 19 11. Watch this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. Jesus ain't a donkey anymore. He's upgraded to a war horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Uh-oh. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now that's freaking awesome. You can't even pronounce this dude's name. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven were arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. How are you going to be in an army and wearing linen? Because when the dude in front of you is covered in blood and the name on his back of his jersey, you can't even pronounce. You don't need anything. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress press of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Apparently, since we can't speak his other name, he went ahead and just decided to tattoo that name on his thigh. That's crazy. If I can't raise my hands and praise for that brother, listen, I can yell at a football game. I can get screamed at as a basketball official at a basketball game and then we show up to church and we're silent? That's absurd to me. King Jesus deserves our praise. This ain't some fairy love Jesus white and pale and borderline like too skinny or you're thinking he's malnourished bearded Jesus that we always kind of think about when we hear about Jesus just love everybody and just do life and let's play the acoustic guitar what this dude's got a sword coming out of his mouth and eyes like fire you can't even pronounce he's all tatted up like I can I can follow that guy there's kings, you know, and Braveheart and all that, and they just sit back and they're like, hey, "You guys go fight, you go fight." Jesus is—he's in the front of the line. He's charging out. That's the God I serve. That's the King that I can worship. When you understand the King, you can't help yourself but praise. Praise be the God who saved my life. Last thing to have the right King in the right kingdom. To avoid frustration, you need to have the right motivation. Motivation. Again, at the end of this Palm Sunday, Jesus weeps for his city. I'm not asking you to cry. I just got done talking about how masculine Jesus is. So I'm not asking you to shed any tears this morning, but I do want to ask you something very important. So I want you to look right at me. When's the last time you walked through your office when's the last time you drove through your neighborhood? when's the last time you strolled through the hallways at school and your heart just broke? Because the people around you just don't get it. They don't understand King Jesus. They don't understand the life. They could have the freedom that's being offered to them. Because Jesus died on a cross to save their sins. When was the last time your heart broke for those people? You ever wondered why, when you trust in Jesus, when you believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, why God just doesn't take you right up to heaven? Like if the the ultimate goal is to get to know God, to get close to God, which I believe that's the ultimate goal, How come when you believe, how come when you're at your closest, how come when your sins have been forgiven, he doesn't just beam you up into heaven? And I'll tell you why. Because he wants you to bring somebody with you. That's why you don't just immediately get up into heaven. Because God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for your life. God has orders that he wants you to follow. He wants you to be obedient. He wants you to be generous. He wants you to praise him. And your motivation needs to be that other people need to hear about King Jesus. Like, let me say it this way. Jesus is concerned about the lost. Like, it's on his mind. Look no further than the parable of the lost sheep and lost coin. Prodigal son, He wants these people in a relationship. The Bible tells us he's just entrusted to you the ministry of reconciliation. That God has given you a new purpose. God has given you a plan to bring people into this saving relationship with him. If that's not enough motivation for you, I I can't help you. You have to stop worrying about what people might think about you. And you have to be concerned the lost, that their eternal salvation is a big deal. And it's a big deal of God. Again, you don't have to look any further than the cross. The fact that Jesus loved you, so I'm going to die for you. I'm going to take all your sin, past, present, and future, onto my body so that you can be made whole again. That you're no longer a slave to anything. I'm a king and I'm mighty. Most importantly, I'm good. Don't be the bottleneck in your life. Get outside your comfort zone. Learn how to follow orders. Be obedient. Be generous. Praise God with your whole life. Every day of your life. Be motivated to share that love with somebody else. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thankful for this opportunity to set the record straight on who King Jesus really is. God, we believe that he came to this earth, that he died a sin that was meant for us so that we can be made new, be made alive. God, I'm asking you to stir in people's hearts right now. Send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way. If you're here this morning, you want to trust Jesus for the very first time. The Bible says, Confess in your heart and believe you'll be saved. And you can do that right now. Don't wait. Say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sins. Make me new. Help me today and every day live for you. And God, I ask that you encourage that person, those people that have trusted you right now. Encourage them to take their next steps of baptism, April 23rd. Also, I ask you to encourage the people here today. Bring somebody to their mind that they need to talk about. Invite to church something to share your love. Motivate them to change the community around them. All for Jesus. It's his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.